Welcome to the Philia Podcasts. We are the daughters of those women who came before us. It is our absolute honour to have met so many incredible women fighting for the liberation of us all. Our role at Philia is to amplify the voices of those women via the Philia Conference and these podcasts. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity, the Philia team. So, hi, I'm really pleased to be joined by Hudu Amori, who's one of our speakers uh, at the conference this year on our panel on Justice for Palestine, Women's Perspective. Hi, Huda. Hi, I am pleased to be here. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So that's quite a title, isn't it? Justice for Palestine. But I think particularly around looking at the women's perspective. What is, what is it that got you so interested in this subject to start with? Well, I was actually raised in the UK um, and I was born to a Palestinian father and my, my mother is actually Iraqi. So I was kind of grew up around the politics of the situation um, throughout throughout my upbringing. And I understood as well the the intensity of what my family had to suffer under the occupation, under Israel's occupation of Palestine. Um, my actual, my, so my, grand, my great grandfather, um, when he was in his early early 20s, he was married to my great grandmother, who at the time was pregnant and carrying my granddad. And he was actually shot in the um, early 1920s by the British during the British imperialism of Palestine. And then several years later, several decades later, actually, in 1967, my dad was forced out with brutal force from his home due to the Israeli army shooting at the front of their house. And he had to, alongside his brothers and sisters and his mother, had to crawl out of the back of their house um, and run and hide in caves for three or four days without any humanitarian aid. My grandma suffered tremendously because she, at the time, was breastfeeding my uncle. And due to the lack of lack of food and so forth, she actually wasn't able to lactate. So these issues I've kind of known all, all of my life growing up and always been um, very observant of, of the news and the news from Palestine. So when I actually managed to, and I always grew up with a certain amount of anger and powerlessness towards the situation. So when I started started becoming more involved in activism, that's when I started feeling actually I'm not powerless and I can do something about this and I use my position to be able to actually do something about the situation in Palestine. And, and that's such an important thing to, to say, because I think the issue in Palestine, like a lot of issues, can often seem too big to be able to affect. But when you find your activism, that's when you start to find a place that you, that you feel you do have some power. And so when, what, what was that for you then? When did that happen? How did you, how did you start to get involved in, in being more active on the issue? Well, it started when... It was in, um, I had always gone to protests with my family, gone to marches in London and Manchester, and I was always involved in the activist world to a certain extent. But it was, I started to really get myself more, <clears throat> more deeply involved in during 2015. So in 2015, I actually went out as an independent volunteer in the refugee crisis in Greece. Um, and I ended up being there for about three months on and off and I was at the border, uh, not the border, sorry, I was on the island Lesbos where oh, yeah. all the refugees would come in from Turkey uh, and I, you know, I'd sleep for about two, three hours a day. I was shocked by the lack of presence from NGOs and other groups who I thought would be more present in the situation and seeing over 3,000 refugees come in every night 
and I managed to do, you know, I managed to help them to a certain extent. I raised a lot of money online before I went out and I was able to help them in the, vol- in the voluntary sector, I'd say. However, I slowly, my frustration started to build up because I had understood that a lot of uh, the reasons behind uh, these wars and conflicts in the Middle East is due to British imperialism and, and the complicity with the arms trade. And once I started to make that link, I started to realise actually I, I sort of felt an urgency to get involved in activism. And being, and I felt so fortunate when I see these refugees. And the only difference I saw between them and me was the fact that I had a British passport. So that meant I had a lot, I had a lot more fortune in that sense compared to most people affected by these situations. So that's when I really started to take take my activism seriously. And it began actually at my university when I started to see that my university was investing so much money into companies which arm Israel, and then I started to realize, actually, this is how I can get involved by trying to end the complicity from UK institutions and build on that. So that's that was probably my first first footing, I'd say. So talking about the boycott, I think that's one of the areas where people have recognized that perhaps companies, organizations that they wouldn't have necessarily have thought had have something to do with the situation in Palestine and then recognise involvement and perhaps giving them an opportunity to do something about that. Can you tell us about, you know, what the boycott's about and how, how the, the work of, of the boycott is affecting it? So it started um, in 2005 when around 180, and it's now increased to over 200, Palestinian civil societies actually made a call to the international community to boycott, divest and sanction Israel as a non-violent means to pressure Israel into complying with international law and the basic principles of human rights. And this has been massively successful in it, like highlighting the situation in Palestine and actually, just like you said, highlighting how the international community has a vital role in trying to bring justice for Palestine. So there's three key demands for BDS. All all are in line with international law and respect for Palestinian human rights. It's to end the blockades and siege of Gaza, to end the illegal occupation of Palestinian territories, um, and to end the apartheid regime, which is both affecting Palestinians within Palestinian territories, but also Palestinians within Israel. So over 20% of the Israeli population is actually from Palestinian descent, and they face more than 50 laws which discriminate against them within Israel's apartheid regime. So this is one of the other key demands of BDS, is to ensure equality for all citizens and also for Palestinian refugees to have the right to return to their homes. Because as you may know, there's more Palestinians outside of Palestine due to the intense occupation and the and how Israel's carried out the occupation of impunity than the is within, and many of these refugees are have been living in refugee camps in the Middle East for decades now. So those are the core demands. But what it's done here is actually shown that companies such as Caterpillar, who will supply the Israeli army of armored bulldozers to bulldoze Palestinian homes, schools, and communities, have actually been highlighted. And often people wouldn't associate Caterpillar a company which does many different things with with these these brutal acts which are going on in Palestine. And it's brought a lot of power to the international community to make a difference. 
So there's been many different successes already within the BDS movement. And most recently, I would mention the cultural boycotts. So there's many different aspects to the boycott. There's the economic boycott, and then there's a cultural boycott. And the cultural boycott is about prominent artists, singers, and so forth, not actually performing in Israel, because by doing so, they'd be crossing the picket line and they'd be breaking the boycott. And they're also art washing what, what Israel is doing and normalizing their war crimes to a certain extent. So there was a recently a meteor festival and it was supposed to be Israel's largest music festival. And after the call for boycott to all the artists who were supposed to participate, over 20 artists from only around 50 artists who were due to play ended up pulling out and refusing to play in Israel until they complied with international law and the basic principles of human rights. And that led to a whole flurry of DJs coming out who weren't necessarily planning on performing in Israel, but by stating that they wouldn't perform in Israel because they would respect the call for boycott from the Palestinian people. So already we're seeing how it's spreading amongst the international community and that shows a lot of hope actually for the BDS movement as a whole. And that's so powerful isn't it? People that perhaps wouldn't necessarily be aware of the situation that actually getting involved and putting their name and putting um, you know their stance behind it to you know get out to just another group of people what the message is and, and what the boycott's about and the, and the demands that, that come from it. And I believe we're, we're speaking the, the weekend of the, the 14th, 15th of September, and yesterday you had a, a national day of action, which I think was really successful. Yes, so one of our main BDS targets at the moment is HSBC, the UK High Street Bank. And the reason for this is that HSBC actually invests over $800 million and also provides financial services to companies which arm Israel. And one of the examples of this is Albert Systems. So Albert Systems are a company who openly admits to testing their weapons on Palestinian civilians in Gaza and market their weapons as field tested. So this is a large um, target. I'm sorry, Hida, can, can you just repeat that? So this company is marketing the fact that they are weapons testing on the Palestinian people? Yes. Yes, it's it's uh, yeah, it's completely apparent. Yeah. It's against any yeah. any sort of humanity, um, and it's it's clearly a war crime as well as yeah. completely contradictory to to human rights and what human rights stipulate. Yet this company actually has over four factories in the UK as well, where they're building the components for the drones. But HSBC are providing them with a lot of financial support. They're, they're investing. In, in such companies which do such apparent things. And HSBC is a unique case because they're doing all of this and also holding an ethical policy which states against these kinds of investments and against association with these types of companies. So actually, a lot of the BDS work is just holding uh, people to account um, to, to the law and to basic human rights and to their own policies. It's quite frustrating in that way that people actually have to be have to be campaigning on these issues. We do have a lot of scope to to create change 
through campaigning on companies such as our banks, such as HSBC. So we launched the campaign in July 2017. And ever since, we've had many different protests happening regularly at HSBC branches across the UK. And just yesterday, we had a National Day of Action, which is when over 35 actions were taking place across the country at HSBC branches, demanding that they end their complicity with Israel's arms trade. And it was massively successful. There was a lot of different actions taking place from die-ins, inside the bank, protests outside of the bank, and actually managed to mobilise you know, a whole bunch of people across the country and increase awareness of these issues to the general public through doing so, whilst also putting a huge amount of pressure on HSBC. Because a lot of the time, actually, how we can affect them is reputational damage, because if they're trying to brand themselves as ethical whilst investing in such companies, then it's our, our job to actually highlight exactly what's going on. Oh, well done. And it, as you say, really good coverage um, across the UK. And if people were out yesterday and wondered what was going on outside the HSBC, that's that's what the protest was all about. Thinking about, you know, if people have seen that or they, you know, listening to the podcast, they think, well, what, what more could they do? How can people get a bit more involved? Well, there's many different ways, even if it's if it's through the hate, if it's the HSBC campaign, which has drawn them in, then they can join their local Palestine solidarity campaign. They can we have e-actions actually on our website. So you can just go on the website and email into the CEO of HSBC, for example, if it's engaging on social media. But there's, there's actually a place for everyone in whatever capacity they're available to get involved in the boycott movement. If, it's from, if they have more capacity, then they can join the protests and spread the movement in their local town and their local city. But if, if they have less capacity, simple stuff just like writing in to these banks and writing in and spreading the message can also be a massive help towards our goal. But I'd also like to highlight, for example, students, many UK universities, and I discovered this whilst during my time at the University of Manchester, will actually directly invest in, in these types of companies. So um, University of Manchester invests millions into Caterpillar, which I previously mentioned, and they supply the armoured bulldozers for the Israeli army to demolish Palestinian homes. And at the same time, they also have a partnership with Technion, which is an Israeli institution who are partnered with Elbit Systems, the company I previously mentioned, and are the, um, are the leaders of research and development for companies such as Elbit Systems. The University of Manchester has a direct partnership, just like many UK universities. So wherever you are, it's sort of holding to account the institutions you're involved in and ensuring that they're not that they're transparent about their investments and their dealings with regimes which are violating international law and committing constant war crimes, and that they're holding these universities to account. So it's actually just, there's complicity everywhere we look, especially in the UK, which is a key ally, unfortunately, to Israel. But there's so much complicity everywhere, so there's a lot that people can get involved in. Well, that sounds great. And w w when we started chatting, we um, talked about your family and um, you mentioned your, your, your grandmother. The, mm -hmm. you know, as I say, the title of the talk is A Woman's Perspective. And I think it is often that women 
that hold the families together. And um, sadly, you know, there are families in Palestine today going through similar things as your grandparents. What would be the, the things that you would pull out as, as the, the woman's, the feminist angle of, of this uh, whole issue? Due to the Israeli occupation, Palestinian human rights are violated for both women and men and children. However, it's often the women who are the shock absorbers of the society. So, for example, in my in my family's case, my great grandmother was left a single parent, living under what was you know soon to be a brutal occupation and trying to raise her family within that in a completely different time, where it was a lot more difficult for a woman to provide for her family. And then even for my grandmother, it was on her to t- to pull the family together because my granddad was away at the time. He was actually in Kuwait when their house was being destroyed and they had to run because of the Israeli military. So it was left to my grandmother to try and ensure the survival of her children and of her family. But And this is something that happens constantly, especially with both men and women are arrested constantly. In, within Palestinian territories and it's often just a way of trying to humiliate Palestinians and trying to succumb them to the occupation and to prevent any form of non-violent resistance from Palestinians and often it's young boys who are targeted and it's the men in the family who are targeted as they see this as a way of weakening the family structure which has proven not to be true because the women after, often actually are now putting themselves on the forefront of the resistance and young women what young women as well such as Ahed Tamimi who was um, who was a teenager and has recently just been released from Israeli detention after eight months but I'll be talking a bit more about that within my talk. Yeah, thank you. And and as you say, there's there's so much to learn. We're really looking forward to, to welcoming you to the conference. And it's um, Saturday morning, um, your session with Justice for Palestine, A Woman's Perspective. And I hope you're able to stay with us over the whole conference as well, Hedda. I hope so. I'm very much looking forward to it. And thank you for inviting me to speak. Oh, you're welcome. And th- thanks for joining us this morning. It's been great talking to you.